Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have David Kaiser on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Road to Dallas. As some of you may know, the book is about the assassination of JFK, and we should thank David for taking on this topic. Uh, he is, I believe, the first academic historian to offer a serious treatment of it. Heretofore, it's been written about by amateur historians, some of them very good, and of course, filmmakers, some of them good and some of them not good. David proposes a very interesting and I think convincing theory that there was a conspiracy of mobsters behind the assassination that they convinced Oswald to shoot and kill the president. You should, of course, read the book yourself and judge the evidence. I enjoyed talking to David today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, David. Hello, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. I'm very well. Where are you exactly? I'm sorry, I don't even know. Are you on? I uh, am in Newport, Rhode Island, oh, where right, I'm yeah. a professor at the Naval yeah. War College. Right. I didn't know whether you were in Newport or not, or you were traveling around. I imagine you've had the opportunity to talk a lot about this particular book, which is, I should tell our um, audience, we're happy to have David Kaiser on the show today, and we'll be talking about his fascinating book, The Road to Dallas, The Assassination of John F. Kennedy. Um, if I could, David, ask you to say a few words about yourself, which is to say where you grew up and how you came interested in history and that kind of thing. Well, that does have a lot to do with the book. Um, I, uh, at the time of the um, inauguration of President Kennedy, was almost 14, and it immediately had a huge impact on my life because my father, who had a long career in and out of the government, mm-hmm. uh, became the ambassador to Senegal. Oh, really? And, wow. we went off to, and we went off to there for two years. And in the fall of uh, 1963, uh, I was in boarding school uh-huh. in Connecticut. Uh-huh at the uh, time of the assassination. Uh Um, And we may return to that because of an interesting thing that happened that evening, uh, which uh, um, comes up in the book. Not my involvement, but it does come up in the book. Uh, Now, after that, uh, I went to uh, Harvard as an undergraduate, graduated in 69, Mm -hmm. uh, eventually went into the Army Reserves, uh, and went to uh, graduate school at Harvard beginning in 1971. Mm-hmm. I was on the faculty at Harvard in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, in the late 70s. I was on the faculty at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh for all of the uh, 80s, and mm-hmm. in 1990 I came here to the Naval War College. Mm-hmm. It it has become clearer to me suddenly, um, actually since the book was finished, why I had to write it. I was very interested in the subject from the time it happened, and mm-hmm. actually I had written a couple of short pieces about it in the 80s and 90s, but my last book, uh, which came out in 2000, was called American Tragedy, Kennedy, Johnson, and the Origins of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Uh, it argued very strongly that Kennedy, uh, well, I should say it showed very clearly that Kennedy had refused to get into the Vietnam War on several occasions, 
and that certainly it didn't look as if he ever would have wanted to do that. Uh, and given that that was the conclusion of the book, I think it's natural that at an unconscious level, my curiosity uh, about exactly why he died was increased still further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we had Howard Jones on the show. I don't know if you know his work, but he's... I don't, know. Yeah, well, he's written on the Bay of Pigs, and he also wrote a, a oh, book. Okay. Of, he wrote a book that, that was related to Kennedy and um, the beginning of the Vietnam War, and we had a very interesting discussion with him about his recent book, The Bay of Pigs. So, yeah, that is a, 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 a that, that is a, an appropriate lead-in to my next question, which is, um, uh, let me just say, I, I'm sure that all our readers know this, but the discussion the analysis, the treatment of the assassination of JFK is the most enormous and thickly planted minefield one can imagine. (laughs) I don't know if that's a terrible metaphor or not, but there is no place you can step and not expect something to blow up. How how did you muster the courage to do this? Well, there were several reasons. Uh, First of all, that's the sort of person I am. Uh, Second of all, uh, this is the fourth major research effort I have done. Three of them involved almost exclusively archival research. Mm -hmm. And I have repeatedly had the experience that even if something has been looked into repeatedly, uh, that when I go back to the original sources, uh, I see things that other people uh, didn't see or didn't do anything with. Mm -hmm. But the biggest reason was this gigantic release of documentation thanks to the JFK Records Act in the 90s, mm-hmm. uh, which was going to make literally millions of pages available. Mm-hmm. And I was certainly confident that there would be new things to find in there. Mm-hmm. And indeed, uh, they were. Uh, but uh, for for good or ill, I've always had that uh, kind of courage. Mm-hmm. And um, that, um, that, that led me into this. Mm-hmm. The problem, the reason it's become such a minefield is that on the one hand, um, as I've discovered, I think the mainstream media and a lot of the younger public uh, have kind of lost interest and feel that there's nothing new to be said, Uh, although the younger public can certainly be interested if you introduce it to them. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the people who still care about it uh, take uh, what I call faith-based approaches for the most part. Uh, there are two major religions involving uh, the case now. The Church of the Lone Assassin, which argues that both Oswald and Ruby uh, just did what they did for personal reasons, mm-hmm. and the Church of the Grand Conspiracy, uh, whose adherents uh, either either state or imply that Oswald was innocent and that there was a huge conspiracy involving all sorts of elements of the uh, federal government. Mm -hmm. Those are the people who still care about it the most, Mm -hmm. and um, all of them were bound to hate the road to Dallas, which argues that on the one hand, um, Oswald did it, but on the other hand, that he did it as part of a conspiracy mainly involving organized crime. Mm -hmm. So uh, that that is uh, what I have run into. Yeah, let me, before you lay out the argument, which I want you to do in a second, and I'm sure our readers want, want to... Uh, or our listeners want to, want to hear it as well so they can actually go out and, and get the, the, the full unabridged version. Let me ask this. What did your colleagues and other professional historians say when you said you were working on this? And I, it's funny because my wife is a mathematician, and I know she was uh, working at Princeton, and um, the fellow that worked on Fermat's last theorem, Andrew Wiles, he took the, because this is a, a notorious mathematical problem. And, and oh, yes, I'm o- quite very familiar. Right, only, only yeah. pe- o- and, and really traditionally only people who are kind of crazy work on it. 
And yeah. so he didn't tell anyone for five years he was working on it. Ah, because yeah. he feared he would be labeled a lunatic. So how did you deal what, – what did people say when, when you said, yes, I'm a serious academic historian, which you obviously are, and I'm working on this topic? Well, I am a serious academic historian, I would like to think. <laughs> we, but, we'll just vouchsafe that right now. <laughs> but, but, okay, but like my exact contemporary, um, Camille Paglia, uh-huh. uh, whom I don't really know, uh, but whom I identify with quite a bit, um, uh, although she's in literature, I, I work in this odd corner of academia in a professional school, um, and I've always had this habit of writing about whatever I felt like. Uh, and actually, ever since graduate school, I've, I've come to realize this in recent years, um, what I love about history is that you get in direct contact with the past. Yeah. And when I'm going through an archive, uh, I'm living this with mm-hmm. them. Now, I think a lot of historians, and particularly the ones who who become professional uh, professionally successful, uh, frequently, it's not like that for them. They're going through the material, but there's another person in the room, and yeah. that other person represents the profession as it is today. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're constantly, they have a reflex which asks them, what is this other person going to think about this? Yeah. And I just don't have that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and that, that's undoubtedly had a broad range of consequences uh, for me, which we don't need to go into now. But it, is, it has enabled me to write the books that I have written, and uh, they're the books that I wanted to write. Yeah. So uh, I think everybody who knows me uh, and who knows my work uh, was delighted to hear that I was doing it uh-huh. uh, because they did think I would come up with something interesting. Uh, but uh, I, I, I will say, um, for the record... <laughs> That the American Historical Review is not going to review the book. Really? Yeah. Uh, yes. Really. Uh, I called them. Well, uh, they listed it for review, and I called them to say, in effect, what the hell is going on here. And uh, the reply I got was, a, uh, they get so many books, uh, and and as you may know, they're very concerned to cover the whole world. So a book, yeah. any book on American history, has less chance of being reviewed there than uh, any book on any other part of the world. Yeah. I'm sure Europe has a second in having less chance, Mm -hmm. by the way. And B, uh, the editor said, uh, we feel this is a topic that a lot lot has been written on already, to which I replied, well, yes, but (laughs) not really much by professional historians, Mm -hmm. but she wasn't impressed. Uh, So uh, I don't know how much um, uh, response is going to get within the academy, um, Mm -hmm. but that's not a major concern, I would think. Yeah, I think it's good. I, I think that you and I are kindred spirits in this way because I had a kind of, as they say in the South, a kind of come to Jesus moment when I <laughs> was turning my um, dissertation into into my first book. And um, I realized that I was, I had reached conclusions that almost everybody that I had studied with would disagree with. And yeah. I really didn't know what to do. I, I really didn't. And, and, uh, and I went ahead and published the book and uh, they didn't agree with me. <laughs> I can tell right. you that they didn't. <laughs> um, I think I proved it, but they didn't agree with me. Um, but, but, well, we all have to. I mean, if we're willing to think for ourselves, we've got to live with that. Yeah, but, no, I, uh, I, I think it's worth it. It's it's funny because I remember in one of the reviews from one of the presses about the book that I wrote. Uh, one of my, she's actually my friend. I, I, it was supposed to be anonymous, but you know these things are always quasi anonymous. I believe it was her, and she she wrote. Um, it seems as if the author thinks this. 
and, and the thing about it is, that was the thesis of the book, the this. Okay, that, that's exactly yeah. what I mean. She's like, <laughs> right. the impression oh, yeah. nobody could believe this. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> nobody could really believe this. Not not ever. Right. Nobody could believe this. I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm arguing. So anyway, I understand exactly. Well, it is a very, I should tell our listeners who aren't academic historians, it's an extraordinarily brave thing to, to, to take on a topic like this, not only because of the historiographical context, uh, which, as I say, is, um, is, is full of pitfalls, but also just because there's such an incredibly enormous amount of material. How did you deal with that? I mean, there are millions and millions of pages of stuff. I'm really glad you asked me that because uh, this is something I would like to share more broadly. Uh, I made a breakthrough uh, in note-taking, which enabled me to write the book, I think. Um, And that was uh, to use Microsoft Excel Uh in lieu of note cards. Uh And basically, uh, the way you do that is that every row is like a note card. Uh And in various um, cells, you put what the document is, the date, etc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but you you can have a subject heading and a subhead, mm-hmm. and um, you can have the date of the document, but also and and in these, this case, this is very important, the date of the incident that the document is talking about. Mm-hmm. Now that enabled me to go through uh, the main investigative file on Oswald. And on Ruby, uh, also, uh, this was the first time I'd made considerable use of research assistance. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was very easy for them to understand the spreadsheet mm-hmm. and to figure out how to use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, when when you were done, you can do a sort. Yeah, exactly. And you can sort by heading and subhead. Then you can sort by date of incident. And all the documents that you need to discuss a certain aspect of the case are your notes are right there. Yeah. In order. Yeah. And that's what allowed me not only to handle an unprecedented amount of material, but in some ways to make better use of the material than an entire large House committee staff was yeah. able to do yeah. in 1977 and 78, because no one person had it in front of them. Yeah. And, and also, they were under tremendous time pressure, yeah. uh, which I wasn't. Now, um, and last but not least, for the professionals out there, uh, there is a command in Excel called concatenate, which will just put together uh, various cells in one. Uh And I realized that I could use that to create the footnote for Uh any particular document and then just lift it right out of Excel and plop it into Word. So that was uh, the, the main way that I was able to do it. Yeah, no, I understand. I, it's funny you mentioned that because this b- brings me to uh, my second book, which was built largely in that way. I constructed a big uh, Excel spreadsheet. Oh, you did it too. I did okay. it. I did this You're the first ta- person I've met who's actually did, done it. Well, and then I turned it into a database um, because you can do that yeah. as well. You can turn it into an access database or any other database. You can port the information. And the database right. just has a kind of easier front end. You can kind of design the front end and you can make what look like note cards sort of in the database. It's it's not particularly necessary. It's it's sort right. of an added bell and whistle. But the sort functions and things like that and the find and replace functions, they enable you to see things oh, yeah. which you can't see with note cards. Oh yeah. You just and can't and see the them. other wonderful thing about it was that you you see a name yeah. in a document and you think Gee, I've seen that before. Where right. was that? Yeah, and then it, now in the old days, that could have been two hours in your office right. going through every note you had. Oh, believe me, I'm a you and yeah, I'm a yeah, I'm and, a big fan of this. Yeah. And now it's about five seconds. You know, edit, find, type yeah. it in. Exactly. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, it's it's true. It's true. And you know, I'm actually trying to develop a class here at Iowa, which is going to be called something like 
you know, uh, computer, the, the use of computers in the analysis and um, description of historical documents, which we'll talk about. All my experiences using technologies doing these oh, things. Great. And there are lots of other things, too. Like, for example, um, I didn't know this until quite recently, but I, back in the day, I used to scan a lot of documents and, and um, keep them on a hard drive. And now um, optical character recognition software has gotten very good so that you can stick documents in your scanner and right. it will produce Microsoft Word documents from them. Yes. They're searchable. And that, that's, that's right. truly a huge boon, especially if you have 150 documents and you're just looking for the couple of names in them. Right. So, yeah, so that's a, that's a huge, yeah, that's a huge that, time saver. That, though, you see, um, is the other part of my SOP mm -hmm. that has stood me in very good stead all my life as a historian. I don't like to I, – I, when I'm spending time in an archive, I do very little copying, mm -hmm. and I focus very much on the note-taking process, which I think is critical. Mm -hmm. In other words, I'm doing a lot of the thinking in the archive, mm -hmm. with, like what's really important about this. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's uh, saved me a lot of time, um, too. Yeah, my archives were all in Russia, and they were kind of un oh, okay. unheated. Right. <laughs> Yeah, like, right, I didn't really right. like to sit there. Um, I suppose you worked in the National Archive or something. It's very nice. There's an art. There's a nice archive where the whole collection is in College Park. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, I know yeah. about that. Yeah, that's one of those. And the archivists, uh, the archivists who work on the collection are, are fantastic. Yeah. Actually, though, uh, as I mentioned in the acknowledgments, I also couldn't have done it without a brilliant amateur, uh, an Englishman named Malcolm Blunt, who uh -huh. got interested in the case in the 90s. Malcolm runs a psychiatric clinic in Britain, and uh -huh. I kidded him that he ought to have a special wing for JFK addicts. <laughs> but um, he uh, has no writing ambitions at all, mm -hmm. but he spends all his vacation time in the archive in an attempt to literally read every document in the collection. He's a man after my own heart. And he is well along in that process. That's and incredible. again and again, I would bring up something I was interested in, and he would tell me where to find something about it, and he was never wrong. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. We Wikipedia is not going to do that for you. Exactly. <laughs> never. I got news for all the fans of Wikipedia, of which I am one. Um, but that's no, never going to – yeah, no, that's incredible. Uh, it's quite yeah. remarkable indeed. So uh, let's go directly to the book then. Uh, sure. if, can you explain the argument in the briefest, sort of most telegraphic way possible? The argument of the book is that President Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald, but as part of an organized crime conspiracy, uh, including uh, Sandro Traficanti, mob boss of Florida, uh, Carlos Marcello of New Orleans, and possibly, although the evidence isn't as clear-cut, Sam Giancana in Chicago, and also uh, with the concurrence, apparently, of Jimmy Hoffa. And that the point of the assassination was uh, to remove the power of Robert Kennedy, who was conducting uh, an all-out war on organized crime, a totally unprecedented campaign uh, that was uh, breaking the rules in various ways and uh, which uh, w was really putting various mob bosses in serious jeopardy. Uh, the second aspect of the argument is that... Um, the assassination emerges from a, a closely related milieu, namely the anti-Castro-Cuban milieu, uh, which included uh, lots of anti-Castro-Cubans, both some subsidized by the CIA, both some not. And, and because of the CIA decision back in 1960 to uh, hire uh, several mob bosses, including the ones I mentioned, uh, to try to assassinate Castro, 
uh, those networks uh, overlapped. Mm -hmm. So as you know, uh, actually Oswald doesn't really even come into the book until about page 175. Mm -hmm. And uh, those first chapters are about establishing the existence of those networks and who was in them and what they were thinking and Mm -hmm. what they were doing and what conflicts had come up. Mm -hmm. And then uh, some of the critical chapters in the latter part of the book uh, involve establishing the links between Oswald and those networks and and also uh, understanding Jack Ruby and who he was Mm -hmm. and his mob connections and uh, why it's quite clear that he uh, killed Oswald as part of the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. I see. So let's uh, kind of try to take this apart just piece by piece. One of the things I found very interesting about the book and, and compelling was, as you said, a, a milieu or an environment in which the assassination of political leaders had suddenly become an appropriate tool. And I, this is something I didn't really realize until actually I interviewed Howard Jones about the Bay of Pigs. And it had been the case that under Eisenhower, late in the Eisenhower administration, and then That's under right. JFK, that they had an active assassination program. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how that shaped things. Well, the the CIA, apparently, as part of um, covert action, uh, had simply decided, uh, and this was uh, really in 1959-1960, that this was a legitimate tool uh, to deal with particularly troublesome foreign leaders. Mm-hmm. And, and much of this, uh, the basic facts of that were unearthed by the Church Committee in 1975. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the three main targets uh, that we know of were Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, mm-hmm. who was assassinated, but not uh, apparently by the people the CIA was trying to hire. Mm-hmm. Uh, Castro, who of course is still with us today, uh, and um, Rafael Trujillo in the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in that case, the plot did succeed eventually mm-hmm. in, uh, I believe, April or early May of 1961. And in fact, uh, I, I suspect that the success of that plot was one thing that encouraged the CIA to continue with the Castro operation. Mm-hmm. It was interesting, too, uh, that of the three, the Castro one was the most closely held. There was more overt discussion at the highest level, of Lumumba especially, uh, partly, I think, out of racial prejudice and of Trujillo, uh, than there was about Castro. But there was, the, there was no question that that was a very serious effort. Now, what I discovered uh, was that the, the church committee, well, the church committee, with respect to the Castro plot, was re- was relying mainly on an internal CIA investigation from 1967, mm-hmm. which was undertaken on President Johnson's behalf. And the inspector general uh, was a very scrupulous and honest man who tried to do a good job and, and who uncovered some startling facts, but he was fooled as to how long it had gone on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the principals persuaded him that the program had terminated in the fall of 1962. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was still going strong mm-hmm. uh, in 1963, mm-hmm. uh, involving one uh, plot where the men were captured in Havana, and uh, there's a second plot, which I talked about at considerable length, the Biopoly Raid, which could be seen, actually, as, as just a continuation of the original mob plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I see. So uh, yes, there is no doubt uh, that that they had that Alan Dulles and President Eisenhower uh, had decided that this was a legitimate weapon, and uh, I'm I regret to say 
Uh, I was criticized somewhat, actually, after American tragedy. Uh, some people criticized me for being too favorable to Kennedy. I, I came out slightly less favorable after this book, and one reason was that after turning it over in my head for a long time, I decided that al although the Kennedys did not know about the mob plot or when, when they found out about it, they tried to stop it, mm -hmm. uh, that the president and probably the attorney general, too, did feel that the assassination of Castro could be part of a successful strategy to overthrow the regime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, again, uh, most of what I know about it comes from reading Jones's book and talking to Jones about it. And it, he makes the argument that uh, after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, uh, in which the Kennedy administration ended up with mud all over its face, it, it became very personal. And especially Robert Kennedy had a tendency to make things very personal. And he so much as wanted to see Castro dead. And they continued apace with the various plots. And they really were, had a kind of a mania about it. You, I was always under the impression that this sort of stuff stopped after the Bay of Pigs, but it did not. At least no, well, I, but I want to be very careful about this. And um, now, there is no question that Robert Kennedy was determined to get rid of Castro, that in late 1961, he was instrumental in putting together Operation Mongoose. A actually, there was a lull in all this. Uh, it, it didn't start immediately after the Bay of Pigs. It was about six months mm -hmm. Uh Now, actually, there are various ways to look at this. Uh, there was a remarkable memo I quoted from a CIA man after the missile crisis uh, when they were going to wind up Operation Mongo Mongoose. And, and he says, in effect, look, we all know what this was really about. Uh, the Attorney General and the President were, were desperate to do something about Castro before the congressional election, which is now over. And uh, there's probably something to be said for that. Mm -hmm. But uh, Mongoose was, it was an interdepartmental effort under General Edward Lansdale. Uh, it was uh, supposed to put together a scenario that would lead to the overthrow of Fidel, uh, not simply by his assassination, uh, although it, it is clear that that could play some role in it. But what is fascinating is that even during that period, uh, William Harvey, who had become the CIA point man on Cuba and who was the CIA representative in Mongoose uh, and who was now the supervisor of the mob plot, wasn't telling Lansdale, much less the attorney general, about mm -hmm. the mob plot. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is clear that, that Harvey and probably Richard Helms, too, regarded Mongoose as an interdepartmental exercise that they had to participate in to make the Attorney General happy, mm -hmm. but not where you would go to discuss the really important sensitive things that the agency was doing. Sure. So uh, it's all very complicated in mm -hmm. terms of determining who was responsible for what. Mm -hmm. I am not convinced, um, I, I must say, uh, Mr. Jones's book is pretty recent, is it not? Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah, uh, so it came out before I'd after I'd finished the book. Yeah, and I, I haven't so. seen it. Mm -hmm. But um, I am not convinced that Robert Kennedy was as deeply operationally involved uh, in Cuban matters uh, as some people have suggested. Mm -hmm. He was up there screaming, "Damn it, get going on this! We got to have something done about this!" Blah blah mm -hmm. blah. There was one incident I found in which a Cuban uh, got to him, in effect. Uh, with a story, uh, and again, this was late summer of 62, just before the missile crisis, of what was supposed to be uh, an uprising in Cuba and couldn't we help. Mm -hmm. And he sent the guy to the CIA. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, they concluded that it was a crock, as mm-hmm. it probably was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was the only case I found in, in which he got so directly implemented in. Then, uh, after the Bad Pigs and the prisoners were released, uh, he had a couple of favorites among the prisoners. But again, uh, the renewed effort to set up the exiles to invade Cuba, this time from bases outside the United States, mm-hmm. um, well, actually the first time was too, uh, that was handled by the CIA. And, and you can go to the archives yeah. now and read every detail about mm-hmm. that. It was it certainly wasn't handled by Robbie Kennedy. Right. Yeah. yeah. I see what you mean. So yeah. then let's go um, directly to the um, assassination conspiracy itself. And yeah. you, you said, if, I, if I'm correct, and I read, that Traficante, Marcello, and uh, Giancana uh, were interested in stopping the attacks which were being made on the mob uh, by RFK. Yes. Why didn't they assassinate RFK? Well, apparently they talked about that, Mm -hmm. and these were guys who knew how to think strategically. (laughs) According to the one conversation that we have that was actually reported about that, uh, their thinking was that if we kill the Attorney General and there's any suspicion about it, the President will send the Marines after us. Mm -hmm. But if we kill the President, we'll have a new President, Lyndon Johnson, Mm -hmm. and everybody knows that he and Robert Kennedy don't get along. Mm Mm-hmm. So we won't have to worry about Robert Kennedy anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, actually, uh, there were recorded conversations by the very diligent Chicago office of the FBI Mm -hmm. in Sam Giancana's hangout, the Armory Lounge, Mm -hmm. after the assassination in which some of his henchmen actually made that point. Mm -hmm. And said, well, the heat's going to be off now, and uh, the FBI isn't going to be investigating guys like us, us they're going to be investigating the fair play for Cubans, uh, referring to the uh, leftist organization to which Oswald had pretended to belong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, this did happen. The organized crime effort was significantly cut back in the first couple of years after uh, the assassination and didn't recover for a long time. Uh, another question of a, of a kind of a skeptical sort is, uh, if it is the case that these men conspired to kill JFK uh, and used Oswald as a tool. Uh, is there any evidence that they tried with anybody else? Which is to say, di- did did they put all of their um, eggs in the Oswald basket, so to say, or did they have a backup plan? Did they have anyone else that they were working with to get the JFK assassination done? Well, I am not aware of any, no. Now, this was handled... Uh, very intelligently in an earlier book by Robert Blakey, who was the counsel to the House Assassinations Committee and his public relations director on the committee, Dick Billings, mm-hmm. uh, which came out in the early 80s. Originally, it was called The Plot to Kill the President. Now it's called Fatal Hour. Mm-hmm. And he pointed out a couple of uh, one or two other uh, very important mob hits, uh, in particular, the murder of uh, Joe Colombo, which took place in broad daylight in New York, mm-hmm. where the perpetrators had picked out somebody. Um, in, in that case, I believe it was a somewhat deranged black man mm-hmm. uh, who could not be tied to them. Now, on the other hand, uh, one of the fascinating stories from the assassination um, is that uh, it c- came from a reporter named Seth Cantor, who had uh, worked for the Fort Worth paper. And at the time of the assassination, uh, he was a correspondent in Washington, but he was on the trip with the president. And he had known Jack Ruby in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. 
Mm -hmm. uh, Jack was a very gregarious fellow who introduced himself to everybody he could. Mm -hmm. And uh, he saw and spoke to Jack Ruby at Parkland Hospital uh, when after, immediately after the president was taken there. Mm -hmm. Now, that upset the Warren Commission so much that they decided that it couldn't have been true. Mm -hmm. Now, here you've got a trained, experienced reporter in the middle of the biggest story of his life, mm -hmm. but but the Warren Commission is telling you he's going to make a mistake about the fact that he saw Jack Ruby, whom he knew, mm -hmm. at Parkland Hospital. Right. Uh, so uh, that certainly raises a question uh, as to what Ruby was doing there and, and whether he had a possible alternative role as well. Mm -hmm. But in terms of an actual uh, designation of somebody as a possible assassin, uh, no, mm -hmm. I, I didn't come across that. Okay, I see. Yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah. Let, let me uh, uh, talk uh, – how did – well, let, let's talk a little bit about um, Oswald himself then, uh, sure. who is a very strange person. I think we can he's all agree on that. He's, he's the strangest person he's I've very, ever studied. He's a very strange person. Um, yeah. uh, he, uh, he, he, he apparently wasn't a terribly good student, but was an intelligent person. Uh, yeah. He grew up with a single mother, is that right? He's not, right. not a very stable home, I guess no. I would say. Yes, that's no. right. Uh, he, um, he drops out of high school, joins the Marines. Is that yep. right? Yeah, joins the yep. Marines. Uh, yep. Now, I, I don't recall, how was he discharged from the Marines? Did he, receive, he did not receive an honorable discharge, did he? No, well, that, that came later. He got a hardship discharge a little bit early uh -huh. based on the idea that his mother needed him to support him, mm -hmm. as I recall. And that was false? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I uh -huh. mean, yeah. She basically, I mean, she was employed. She, she yeah. supported himself. Exactly. So he could uh, but, but he didn't, but, but he had been in for a couple of years. I, I think, uh, that was a matter of months. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. that was the only difference that made. Right. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he immediately takes this trip to Europe, takes a boat to Helsinki, goes to Moscow, yep. and announces that he's defecting. Yeah. It was because of that that he got. Uh, the dishonorable discharge. Oh, I see. Um, and in fact, I tried to stay away from psychoanalyzing Oswald a great deal, as you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. But one thing that is fascinating about him, I mean, you, you remember Freud said, uh, when if you want to understand a dream, it's the thing that doesn't make any sense that you've got to focus on, mm -hmm. because that's really the key to the dream. And if you can figure out why that's there, then you're home free. Mm -hmm. Now, here we have Oswald who announces uh, in Moscow that he wants to live in the Soviet Union, um, uh, that he's going to betray radar secrets, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, mm -hmm. um, and does live in the Soviet Union for three years, mm -hmm. and then comes back and immediately starts contacting leftist organizations. Now, mm -hmm. one thing that I didn't develop in the book at length, but it's a fact, is he was very angry about that dishonorable discharge. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a lot of letters and sought legal advice at one point in New Orleans. And um, as a matter of fact, uh, there's even an incident I didn't put in the book. Um, I might be more inclined to put it in now. But there was a woman in Austin who, uh, just before Oswald showed up in Mexico, claimed she remembered him coming in to ask about his discharge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she seemed to be a very good witness. Mm -hmm. So uh, he, he really thought this was a bum rap mm -hmm. and uh, that he didn't deserve it. He also wrote a letter, ironically, uh, to John Connolly, um, <laughs> who, who took one of his bullets, yeah. when Connolly was the Secretary of the Navy, uh -huh. because the Marine Corps you know, as part of the Navy, and, yeah. and he thought Connolly ought to uh, be able to help. But, of mm -hmm. course, he didn't get anywhere. Yeah. 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 So why, why, did, why, why, why did Oswald go, go to Russia? 
Why, why? Well, the whole. I mean, I, I, the, the I, question I just is can't whether he out. went for his own reasons, yeah. just to see what it was like, or whether he went as some kind of intelligence operation. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that question. Uh, now, again, if you talk to a member in good standing of the Church of the Lone Assassin, they will say something like, the CIA would never have used somebody as unreliable as Oswald. Mm-hmm. Now, based on the people the CIA did use for all sorts of things, I think that's a very weak argument. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things you see that makes all this so complicated is that you discover that when the CIA is doing something really sensitive, uh, they don't do it directly. Mm-hmm. They don't walk up to Joe Smo on the street and say, how would you like to do something for the CIA? Mm-hmm. They they use a cutout and, and try to try to make it impossible for the individual involved to know and certainly to prove that he is working for the CIA. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, there were a series of defections like Oswald, at least three or four, uh, in roughly the same period of time. Mm-hmm. Americans who found themselves in the Soviet Union, who suddenly announced that they wanted to live there, who stayed a few years, and left. Mm-hmm. Now, and then you find these tantalizing things in the sources, which could mean so many different things. Uh, and, and for instance... There was a CIA man uh, who is referred to in the House Committee uh, archives as Kassassin, C-A-S-S-A-S-I-N, mm-hmm. which is probably not his real name. But he had been part of the Soviet Russia branch, and they had a document. It was a memo he had written a day or two after Oswald was killed, and it starts out, it doesn't matter now, of course, but I remember that the Soviet Russia branch uh, was aware of Oswald in, in Minsk after he defected and wanted to talk to him when he got back. And, mm-hmm. and we had been thinking about how we might do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's all he says. And now the House Committee decided sensibly that they wanted to interview this guy, and that was eventually arranged. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talked at great lengths. Uh, now, it, uh, also, uh, this guy had at some point later he admitted, run an agent into Russia who had then married a Russian woman and they'd come out, just like Oswald. And now this guy says, though, I'm not aware of any defector program at that point. I don't think this is something we would have done. Of course, I can't be sure. But he also uh, gives him his biography, and uh, what do you know? He was working in Japan at the same time that Oswald was in the Marines in Japan. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't prove anything, but... <laughs> Suggestive, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so who knows? And, and the thing is, uh, you read my book, and, and I would like to think that anybody who reads the book would agree that in those days at least, if the CIA didn't want to admit something, and if you couldn't prove it was true, mm-hmm. they weren't going to admit it. Yeah, I no, mean, I that was it. just an SOP. Yeah. So unfortunately, what they say, it, it doesn't prove anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as to exactly why he went, uh, I, I, I don't think we'll ever know. Mm-hmm. But that is not critical to any argument that I made one way or the other. Um, does he ever attempt to explain why he went in any of his writings? Uh, his... He just said, um, well, he was interviewed twice by the FBI when he came back. And, and he just said, you know, I wanted to see what it was like. or I felt like going and I went and now yeah. I'm back. Uh-huh. End of story. Yeah. Uh, so, No. Mm-hmm. Now he he was known in the Marine Corps as a guy with eccentric and leftist views. Yep, uh, that is true. 
Um, now, again, uh, one of the fascinating things about him, one of the critical pieces of data, I think, which was provided by his brother, and I think you're a little younger than I am, so this, mm-hmm. this won't resonate quite as much with you as it did with me, was that Oswald's favorite TV program uh, in the 50s was the program I Led Three Lives, mm-hmm. which was about a guy who infiltrated uh, the Communist Party on behalf of the FBI, mm-hmm. named Herbert Philbrick, Breaks mm-hmm. Down a True Story. Mm-hmm. And I read her, Philbrick's book, which Oswald, I can't prove he read it, but uh, he read a lot, and given that he loved the show, I wouldn't be surprised if he had. Mm-hmm. And Philbrick actually did uh, several things quite similar to what Oswald did in uh, mm-hmm. the Alice in New Orleans in mm-hmm. 19... In uh, 1963. Now, Oswald apparently loved the idea of being some sort of an agent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so one could argue that he was just freelancing and all these things he did, but I I don't really believe that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But however, uh, I'm, as you know, I'm much more prepared to say that Oswald was was acting in some sort of counterintelligence capacity Mm -hmm. after he got back uh, Mm -hmm. than I am uh, to make a statement like that about the time in. In the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- then he co- he comes back and yeah. uh, we'll we'll skip the details about his Russian wife and, and child and things. And he joins a group called I think it's called Fair Play for Cuba. Is that right? Well, he doesn't exactly join it. He he uh, start okay. he he founds a branch of it or something. Well, let's he? back up. Let's okay. back up. Okay. First, in in Dallas, the, the, they spent the better part of a year in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Then they moved to New Orleans in May '63. And uh, in the second half of 62, in Dallas, he starts writing letters to the Communist Party of the United States and to the Socialist Workers Party, the uh-huh. Trotsky Party, yeah. saying, I'd like to help you. Right. Um, he says to the Socialist Workers, I'd like to join. Is mm-hmm. there a branch around here? I say, no, actually, there's no branch anywhere in Texas. Mm-hmm. Blah, blah, blah. And they are, they, now both those organizations are, are loaded to the gills with FBI informers. Mm-hmm. And they are obviously very suspicious of him. Mm-hmm. Then uh, he goes to New Orleans, and then he writes a third organization, uh, w- w- the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which actually is made up of a mix of communist and Trotskyite members for mm-hmm. the most part. Mm-hmm. And it's the major pro-Castro organization in the United States, and it's been financed by the Cuban government, evidently. Mm-hmm. And he says, I want to start a chapter. Right. And uh, the the executive director, I think it is, B.T. Lee, writes back and says, well, uh, you'll need half a dozen members, I think, and uh, then we can give you a charter. Mm-hmm. But I'd be very careful because you're in a very hostile part of the country, mm-hmm. and uh, it would probably be not a good idea to rent an office or anything like that just yet. Mm-hmm. And so Oswald writes back uh, and says, well, actually, I've gone ahead and rented an office. Now, he hadn't, but he says that he had now, and and also, meanwhile, he's asked for literature, and mm-hmm. sent him some literature, although we got a lot more printed up himself. And and at that point, Lee obviously concludes, oh, boy, this guy is nothing but trouble. Mm-hmm. And he drops him. He doesn't write back to him anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Oswald continues to report on his activities, and Oswald starts handing out leaflets in various places around New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And acting like he's the head of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, now this is one of the things I discovered in the archives, and you, you do make these remarkable discoveries. Um, the story that you read in the Warren Report is, is basically that nobody in, in New Orleans, in the Cuban community, had heard of Oswald until 
uh, I think it's the last week in July, when he walks into the store of uh, Andy Castro Cuban named Carlos Bringier and has a conversation with Bringier. And actually, there were two young Americans, guys just my age at the time, who were in that conversation too, and, and they described it rather differently than Bringier. But at any rate, he was there. And then a few days later, as Bringier uh, describes it, uh, two Cubans run into the store and say, hey, there's a guy handing out pro Castro leaflets around the corner. And so they go rushing out, and there's Oswald handing out his leaflets. And Bringier, who claims that Oswald had presented himself as an anti-Castro guy, wanted to help, goes crazy, and they start screaming at each other, and the police are called, and they get right. arrested, and mm-hmm. get some papers, blah, blah, blah. Now, uh, it turns out that Oswald had been handing out leaflets on that very street uh, for over a month, or at least a month earlier, mm-hmm. and he had attracted the attention of another Cuban who got into an argument with him about this, who turned out to be somebody that Bringuere actually knew, mm-hmm. and that guy... That Cuban, Rafael Naris was his name, had written a letter about this in late June to none other than J. Edgar Hoover himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, this whole story of Bringuere's uh, begins to look somewhat fishy. Mm-hmm. Now, um, to make a long story short, the extraordinary discovery that I made, and again, this was rather late in the day, was that... The FBI, and this is in other parts of the Church Committee report, was running this program called COINTELPRO to infiltrate and disrupt and embarrass communist and communist-front organizations. It Mm -hmm. started in the 50s. Mm -hmm. The first two big targets of it were the Communist Party of the USA and the Socialist Workers, Mm -hmm. the organizations Oswald wrote to in late 1962. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile... A third target became the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Mm -hmm. And all this was described in an internal FBI memo that Hoover ordered up on the night of the assassination, saying, what's the story in the Fair Play for Cuba Committee? And that memo came in a day or two later, and it explained that the Bureau had gone on a COINTELPRO campaign to start a feud between the communists and the Trotskyites and to use friends of theirs in the press to embarrass the committee. Mm and that they were very uh, proud of this. Mm-hmm. Now, Hoover then had them prepare another copy of the memo for the Attorney General, Robert mm-hmm. Kennedy. But in that copy, all the material about the COINTELPRO campaign was left out. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the Attorney General didn't need to know about that. Mm-hmm. Now, furthermore, it turns out, going back to the Church Committee report, that two things. First of all, in doing these operations, The FBI frequently, again, used cutouts, used third parties, Mm -hmm. normally local law enforcement or uh, right-wing organizations like the American Legion or people like that. And there were organizations like that in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And uh, secondly, that the technique of founding a phony chapter had actually been used Mm -hmm. in an unidentified southern city. Mm -hmm. Uh, I sure would like to know what it was. to embarrass another organization. So, uh, now I didn't get to the punchline of the story, which is that after being arrested and so on and getting this publicity, Oswald winds up in a radio debate about Castro Mm -hmm. with Brinkier and an anti-communist activist named Ed Butler. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, Ed Butler bragged to Gary Wills, who was then a journalist a few years later, that he was an expert in infiltrating and disrupting communist organizations. So anyway, they get into this debate, and Oswald uh, actually rather cleverly is uh, 
he was trying to stand up for Castro and and uh, and saying that he's a Marxist but not a communist and so on. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, uh, Butler, uh, using documents that apparently had been given him by the House of Un-American Activities Committee, springs it on the viewers that this is a guy who defected in 1959 and said he was going yeah. to betray radar secrets, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So this particular chapter is exposed, in effect, as a communist front. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, this, to me, is very considerable circumstantial evidence that Oswald was, had been drawn into, uh, some sort of, uh, counterintelligence operation to embarrass, uh, local communists in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, those are not, though, the key links with the mob and the anti-Castro types that, uh, that, uh, prove the conspiracy. Yeah, we'll come to that in just one second. One yeah, more question sure. about Oswald and the uh, Fair Play for Cuba Committee and yeah, the communists right. and so on and so forth, and the CIA. If uh, Oswald was working for the CIA, even through a cutout, uh, we'd have to imagine that there was Now, I only said that with respect to going to Russia. Yes, I understand that. I expect about that, but go ahead. Yeah, okay. sorry. So we would expect some sort of quid pro quo. Is there any evidence of anything that... Uh, any you mean favors? he would get something? Would he get, did he get anything for it? Is there any evidence that he got anything? Well, yeah. Uh, in one case, there is, uh, because apparently he was debriefed by a cutout mm-hmm. in Dallas named George DeMorenshield, a very enigmatic white Russian yeah. who had done various jobs for the CIA, yeah. some overt, some covert. And um, according to DeMorenshield, just before he died, in an interview with a very respected nonfiction writer, uh, the local CIA man in Dallas, the domestic contacts man, had told him to keep an eye on Oswald and also to have him tell a story. And Oswald mm-hmm. actually typed out the story of life in, in Minsk. Uh-huh. Now, um, the one thing Oswald got was that he had had to borrow uh, several hundred dollars, which in those days, would, I mean, that would be a couple thousand dollars today. Mm-hmm. I think it was about $500, actually, or 500 from the State Department. And... Um, mysteriously, at the end of 1962, he came up with the money to pay that off. Mm-hmm. And there is other evidence, an impromptu remark by DeMornshield's wife, that that money probably came from DeMornshield. I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to um, the meeting between Oswald and the mobsters. How, how did they, how did Traficante, Marcelo, Giancana, and I guess uh, on the sidelines is Hoffa, how did they uh, learn about Oswald? Well, we don't exactly know, although we know how it could have happened. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. There are two figures in uh, New Orleans who who are linked. One uh, was Oswald's uncle, um, Charles Dutz Moret, uh, actually uncle by marriage. His, his wife was the sister of Oswald's mother. Mm-hmm. And he was a former boxer and a bookie in the Marcello organization. And, in fact, when Oswald first went to New Orleans initially without Marina, uh, he stayed with them for a few days. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, Oswald's mother had some long-standing mob connections of her own, including a couple of boyfriends. The second, which is very controversial, but which can't be ruled out, uh, is David Ferry, who became the centerpiece of Garrison's investigation in the film JFK. Mm-hmm. This eccentric uh, pilot, um, who was also involved with right-wing organizations and anti-Castro-Cubans, and... Uh, with Carlos Marcello and was helping prepare Marcello's defense in the summer of 1963. 
Now, uh, there was a lot of controversy as to whether Oswald had known David Ferry when he was in junior high or just starting high school as a cadet in the Civil Air Patrol, Mm -hmm. which Ferry was very active. And actually, uh, again, looking at the original investigation, uh, the FBI did find the witnesses that said, yes, he did. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the real clincher came out relatively recently, and it's a picture, which is in the book, that shows both of them at a Civil Air Uh, Patrol picnic meeting. Uh Now, we don't have any proof of a contact between Oswald and Ferry in the summer of 63 in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. But uh, the connections that we can prove are indirect, and and one of them has to do with the Odeo incident, which I think is the single most important piece of evidence, and the other has to do with John Martino, who was the Traficante associate whom we know uh, was part of the conspiracy and knew that the assassination was going to take place before it did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So how is it communicated to Oswald? How is he convinced or how is he led to commit to the assassination itself by this well, group? Okay, for that, we have to go to the Odeo incident. Mm-hmm. Sylvia Odeo was a beautiful young Cuban refugee um, living in Dallas, with several children, and uh, one evening, actually, I'm pretty convinced now, partly because of new information that came out after the book came out, that it was on the 3rd of October, which is the day Oswald got back to Mexico. Uh, and three men show up. Two of them are, are claiming to be Cubans, but she thinks they're Mexicans. Uh, actually, I think one of them was American, one of them was Mexican-American, and the third one was an American who she identified as Oswald. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they asked her about anti-Castro activities in Dallas and for some help raising money. But then the next day, the leader, his name was Leopoldo, called her. And he indicated uh, that uh, the American, as he called him, mm-hmm. was an ex-Marine, as Oswald was. He said he was a great shot. And uh, he indicated that they had discussed with the, the, the subject of assassinating both President Kennedy or Fidel Castro had come up in discussions mm-hmm. with this guy. And and actually, as she explained to the Warren Commission, they were feeling her out as to whether she could uh, help them smuggle him into Cuba. I see. So he could take a shot at Castro. Mm-hmm. And again, I, it, it struck me years ago that that was very significant because this is right at the moment when he had been trying to get into Cuba mm-hmm. via Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Um, so now... As I tried to show, for a lot of reasons, including his own statements, uh, Leopoldo was almost certainly Lauren Hall, who was an American mercenary who had been in Cuba in 1959, actually, Mm -hmm. and who was involved in a lot of the planned operations against um, uh, Castro. He had been raising money in California recently. And he knew Martino, and he had met Traficante. Actually, he met Traficante Mm -hmm. in prison in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And and so we have him with Oswald discussing these things mm-hmm. uh, in late September, early October. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we have the extraordinary incident, which, again, if you haven't seen the whole investigation, it's easy to toss this off. And that's what the Warren Commission and various other people have done. But uh, if you see all the interviews the FBI did, it's impossible to believe that it didn't happen. Of Oswald in early October... Uh, on a, probably a Friday afternoon, walking into a car dealership in Dallas and taking a car for a test drive, an expensive car, 
And as the salesman described it, uh, looking at Oswald, it was hard to believe he could afford this car. Mm-hmm. And he said to him, have you actually got the money? And he says, no, but I've got it coming. Mm-hmm. I'll have it soon. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that was a very suggestive uh, mm-hmm. episode as well. Mm-hmm. So they handled it very cleverly, and, and they were dealing with somebody who knew how to keep his mouth shut. And, mm-hmm. and this is the, one of the most striking things about Oswald. There are two things about him that, that I find really scary. Uh, first of all, as a friend of mine put it, he has no vices, and I don't trust a man who has no vices. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about – he doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He, he doesn't care what he eats, and he doesn't seem to care very much about sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's very angry, and it's all held inside. Mm-hmm. And secondly, he's very secretive. Mm-hmm. And he is capable of keeping things that he's about to do or things that he has, uh, that he has done from everybody, mm-hmm. just about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, Marina, although she changed the story when she showed up before the Warren Commission, told the FBI about 20 times, I didn't even know you'd been to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I think that was true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and Ruth Payne, who, who Marina had been living with, certainly didn't know it. Until she saw a letter that Oswald wrote to the Soviet embassy that referred to it mm-hmm. uh, weeks and weeks later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, if I'm correct here, there's you put a lot of weight on the Odio incident. I sure did. Uh, yeah. Um. And and there are people that believe it did not occur. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah. I have and to wh- that. Yeah. <laughs> why, exactly. Why do they believe? Although, it although, yeah, excuse me, I wanna I wanna say something about that. Uh huh. Vincent Bugliosi, who is now one of the high priests of the Church of the Lone Assassin. Uh huh. In his book, uh, he admits uh, that it probably did happen, uh-huh. and I give him credit for that. But but he decides that even if it happened, it wasn't important. Right. So why why did these? What are the arguments against the Odeo incident not having been an incident and having been a fiction? A fiction? Well, again, you see, if you're a member of the Church of the Lone Assassin and you're confronted with unpleasant evidence, <laughs> then any. Contrary evidence at all is sufficient uh-huh. to write it off uh-huh. and say, I'm not going to believe that. Mm-hmm. All right? Now, uh, first of all, Sylvia muttered the wa- muddied the waters herself. Uh, she was moving. She was, about, she was actually packing to move mm-hmm. from one apartment to another mm-hmm. at the time of um, the incident. And her new lease began on the 1st of October... And the 1st of October, if I'm not mistaken, was a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, one of the rules of evidence, and I found this too doing my earlier book about Sacco and Benzetti, is that when you have a witness who's told several stories, the one to believe is the first one, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, the first time Sylvia Odia was interviewed was in December 63, uh, because uh, a friend of hers had tipped off the FBI about her story, and they went to see her, and she said this happened in late September or early October. Mm-hmm. Now, this is only two months afterwards. Then the FBI completely dropped the ball on this and did absolutely nothing with it until about six months later the Warren Commission said, hey, this is really important, then you better look into it. Now, and then Sylvia gets interviewed by the Warren Commission. Now, at that point... She's been talking it over uh, with her sister, who was also there, and they have decided that it was partly, that it was probably December 25th or 26th. Mm -hmm. Now, that 
didn't seem to be impossible. And in the book, I said that it could have been on the 25th. Actually, mm-hmm. on the 26th, it couldn't have. But it could have been on the 25th. Mm-hmm. Um, but I realized when I was writing the book, that it, and I put this, that it also could have been on the 3rd of October because... Uh, again, you see, it's only a year after all this has happened. This is the great tragedy. Is the FBI ever investigates it thoroughly. Mm-hmm. And they find her landlady in the apartment she was moving out of mm-hmm. who says, well, I might have let her stay to the end of the week mm-hmm. so she could move on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And that, I am now convinced, is what happened because it turns out that Lauren Hall wasn't in Dallas, apparently, on September 25th and 26th, but uh-huh. it was on October 3rd. I see. That's not in the book because that's come up later in a very interesting way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, and again, now Sylvia Odio had shared the story with her psychiatrist, with her employer, with a priest, although he's a rather enigmatic figure, and the psychiatrist and her employer and many other people who knew her, including her uncle, a professor in New Orleans, always, all said she wouldn't make this up. Right. I would believe her. Mm-hmm. Her sister brought it up. But if you're on the other side, uh, for the most part, all it takes is one discrepancy to, hold, to throw the whole thing out. I see. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's how they throw it out. I see. So yeah. moving – so then if I understand correctly, um, Leopoldo, uh, who, yes. who is working with Traficante, Marcelo, Giancana, and perhaps Hoffa, well, right, they try well, to – Well, I, I wouldn't he, – he certainly had known Traficante, and he claimed he had met Giancana, yes. Okay. So they try to run uh, – he tries to run – Oswald into Cuba to kill Castro. Right. And that doesn't work. Right. And so they have this assassin, and they don't quite know what to do with him. So then we somebody are... in New Orleans, somebody probably in Tampa or Miami, uh-huh. where Travagani hung out, is talking about this, and somebody says, gee, do you suppose we could get him to take a shot at the president? Uh-huh. Right. And so that somehow he's convinced to do this. Yes. Yes. Now... Yeah, go ahead. Go so, on. Is, is this the point at which he gets the rifle and takes the photographs and this kind of thing? No, that's way before. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm that's months me. and months before. Yeah. He's so already he's, got those. He's already well-armed, yes. Okay, so yes. so now he's uh, – the, then they convinced uh, – the, under your hypothesis, they convinced him to go ahead and try to do this. How does he get to the Texas Book Depository? From he's already he, working at the He's Texas already working there, so, he, so he's perfect. Which is a fantastic coincidence. Yeah. And, and I mean, to me, that's a fantastic coincidence, no matter which religion you belong to. Right. And how did he get the job at the Texas Books Repository? Remind me. Uh, Ruth Payne had a neighbor. Marina, you see, when he went to Mexico from New Orleans, Marina moved back to Dallas with Ruth Payne. Uh-huh. And actually, Marina actually said, again, to the FBI at one point, I didn't think I was ever going to see him again uh-huh. at that point. Uh-huh. And uh, Ruth Payne was living in Irving. And he shows up there uh, a day or two after he gets back from Mexico City, which, uh-huh. again, is interesting. Yeah. I think it's only one day, but that still yeah. leaves the knife of the audio incident. Yeah. And she has a neighbor who's working there, Yeah. and she suggests this. So this was not – This might work. This was an accident, not part of any plot, it looks no, like. I, yeah, no, right, no, no. Yeah. I just, think it was it, a complete accident, yes. Right. Yeah. So, so um, and, and then it's confirmed. They learn that JFK is, in fact, coming, and he's going to drive right by the Texas Book Depository. And, and is yes. it, is at this point, somebody contacts Oswald and says... Now, now, interestingly enough, though, there is evidence about Oswald scouting out another possible oh. assassination perch mm-hmm. in that the owner of a parking garage, a multi-level parking garage in the same area, remembered him coming in and asking about a possible job 
uh, a few weeks before the assassination and saying, is there a good view from the roof or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So, yeah. So mm-hmm. um, Oswald uh, takes this remarkable shot, and a remarkable shot it was. A series of remarkable shots. Yes, a series shot. of remarkable yeah. shots. Well, it wasn't that remarkable, but yeah, okay. Okay, Go it ahead. was a good shot. And yeah. uh, then was the plan at that point to have him assassinated? According to Martino, whom we mm-hmm. haven't gotten into in detail, yeah. but this makes perfect sense to me, he was supposed to meet somebody. They were going to get him to a secluded location uh, and kill him. Uh-huh. In other words, he would have disappeared. Right, exactly. Yeah. Now, it's interesting to think about what would have happened had that taken place because he would have been identified as the assassin via the rifle, the book to Bob's mm-hmm. story, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It would have come out that he had been in the uh, Soviet and Cuban embassies in Mexico City mm-hmm. um, two months before. Mm-hmm. And even as it was, a rumor, which the CIA determined to be false, eventually circulated. It was picked up by the CIA of a private plane that had supposedly flown into Mexico City from uh, Texas on the late afternoon of the 22nd, and that the plane, the scheduled plane from Mexico City to Havana had been held up Mm -hmm. to take a passenger from that plane. Mm -hmm. Now, again, when the CIA finally ran this down thoroughly, they decided there was nothing in it, Mm -hmm. uh, and they had good data on that. But supposing that rumor breaks out after Lee Harvey Oswald, the purported assassin, has disappeared, Mm -hmm. you can imagine that the pressure to go straight to Cuba would have been mm-hmm. enormous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the great irony of all this was, you, you see, the beauty of it from the conspirators' point of view is that they have a guy who's known as a communist and who's just been to those two embassies. Mm-hmm. The great irony is that Lyndon Johnson, to a certain extent, was convinced, <laughs> or at least he was very frightened that this was the real story. Mm-hmm. But his reaction was to try to make sure that instead the public was convinced that this was just a lone assassin and there, there was nothing to worry mm-hmm. about so that he would not have to start World War III right. of the assassination of John Kennedy. Yeah, no, yeah. and that, 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 is, that is convincing. I think that, that part of the story is, is quite convincing. You can easily see why Johnson wouldn't, wouldn't want to pin it on the Cubans because there would have been right. a call. You know, there would have been a, a, a call for a, an attack right. against Cuba. So then um, – I think I see the whole picture now. Let, let me ask you this question. How has the uh, book been received by the various parties who are interested? <laughs> <laughs> and I know they are several. Well, well let, me, let me start with the good news. Uh-huh. Um, my son and I uh, set up a website, theroadtodallas.com. Uh-huh. And there you can read uh, about a half a dozen um, very gratifying reviews uh-huh. uh, written by people in newspapers around the country. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think there's another one that was written in the Niagara Falls News, which we still haven't gotten up there. But mm-hmm. uh, that was by actually a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are people like yourself, if I may say, who are, well, you're a professional, but, but the intelligent average citizen who reads the book, I think, understands there's something very important here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the members of the two churches to which I referred, all they have to do is see the conclusion to know that the book is wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> since they are so yeah. committed to their conclusions. Yeah. And uh, 
Some of them, particularly uh, members of the Church of the Lone Assassin, who who have slightly more credibility at this point, uh, have been waging a fairly violent campaign against the book uh, mm-hmm. on the Internet, mm-hmm. but always without even actually going into what the book says mm-hmm. and the most important parts of the argument. For instance, my bitterest critics, and there have been about three of them, managed to discuss the book without mentioning John Martino or Lauren Hall at all. Mm-hmm. Now, I take this as a kind of a reverse indicator of of what is most important in the book and what is most painful from their point of view. That's clever, I see. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, in other words, uh, I, I mean, first of all, it's really made a couple of people a bit crazy, uh, and and that in itself I take as a compliment because if the book was really trivial they wouldn't even have to get upset. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, uh, as I say, they are avoiding uh, dealing with the most important things in it. And, and actually, in general, the Church of the Lone Assassins increasingly, if you push them, they fall back on psychological um, comments about Oswald. Yeah and the sort of person they think he was and how nobody could have um um n- nobody would have selected him for such an assignment. Now, I don't see how they can say that because uh-huh. he did so well. I mean he carried it out, he got out of the building and when he was caught he denied everything. I mean what more could you want? Uh-huh. Uh now uh there is an interesting historiographical point about this. In that one of the key texts for the Church of the Lone Assassin is a book by a journalist named Priscilla Johnson McMillan called Marina and Lee, which mm-hmm. she published in 1975, 13 mm-hmm. years after the event, based purportedly on long talks with Marina, mm-hmm. with whom she had become friendly. Mm-hmm. Now, as I said, Marina, in the wake of the assassination, was interviewed over 20 times by FBI agents and basically said again and again, I didn't know anything, I didn't know what he was doing, I didn't know who he saw, blah, blah, blah. Then, uh, and and there were reasons for this, which I went into in the book, having to do with some gentlemen she had become involved in who mm-hmm. were trying to make money out of her. Mm-hmm. She goes to the Warren Commission and tells quite a different story, saying that she knew he'd been to Mexico, that he wanted her to help hijack a plane to Cuba and things like that. Mm-hmm. But then, when Maria and Lee comes out, it includes a day-to-day, minute-by-minute account <laughs> of everything Lee did and his reactions to it and her reactions to it and Uh-oh. everything else. Uh-oh. And again, yeah. you know, I mean, it's 13 years old and, yeah, right. and so on. So uh, can you, can you I re- don't really feel that's a source that can yeah. be relied on. I was going to say, can you remember what you did two days ago? I can't. I, <laughs> Increasingly, I, I, no. I am really but, pretty much at a loss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I do want to mention, though, yeah, yeah, this is a good time since you brought up memory. The incident that I went through on the night of the assassination, which in retrospect seems rather fascinating to me. Uh-huh. And this happened. I sound like Sylvia Odio here. Uh I am pretty certain that this happened on the night of the assassination itself, on the Friday night. It could have been the next night on the Saturday, which would be almost equally remarkable, but I think it was on Friday night. I was in my room, my single room in boarding school, listening to the radio, to uh-huh. all the continuous coverage. Yeah. And they come on with the tape of the radio debate that Oswald had been in about Cuba. Yeah. 
this two months before. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, isn't this amazing that the president was shot this afternoon, and here I am sitting here less than a day later yeah. listening to this tape. Yeah, it is amazing. <laughs> it is, yes, yes. No, it's quite, you, probably, okay. you can probably find that on YouTube now. I'm almost sure you can. I mean, the blog, uh, I, it's a good chance that would be on YouTube. If, if and and I believe the clip of Jack Ruby uh, correcting the the police officer, the DA, uh, about the fair play for Cuba, yeah. Cuba committee. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's on there, I'm too. sure it is. I'm absolutely yeah. sure it is. Well, David, we have taken up a huge amount of your time, and I, I could go on and on here. I'm not sure that our listeners um, have the same sort of stamina that, that professional historians such as ourselves have about these. But maybe they do. I don't know. I may get like, I, I tons of emails. I think on this topic, there are some people at least who uh, Interview him again. You didn't talk about Jack Ruby. Well, let's you just, let's just mention that the book is The Road to Dallas. Road to Dallas, and, absolutely. Uh, well, it's it's, it's available from Amazon.com, and also there's a link. I'd like to mention my my weekly op-ed page, my blog, historyunfolding.com, and you can find it there, too. That's great. uh, This has been great. Yeah, it's been great. Let me ask you our our final question, then. What are you working on now? I have been poking around on a couple of things. Um, The one decision that I've made pretty firmly after the last 20 years is that for the time being, at least, I'm through with writing about my own lifetime. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been great, and it, it brings back all sorts of memories uh, and so on, but I think I've done enough of that. It looks like uh, the most likely thing for me to push ahead with now uh, is uh, something on 1940 and 41 and the mm-hmm. American entry into the war mm-hmm. with the aim of uh, contrasting, on the one hand, the very lively public debate on whether to get into the war uh, with Roosevelt's step-by-step leading of opinion in that direction. But meanwhile, and this is a part of the story that most people don't know, the decisions that are being made about armament, production, all kinds of things, uh, during 1940 and 41 that are going to make it possible for us to win Mm-hmm. decisive victories in 1944, which is a really mm-hmm. amazing story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is uh, where I'm focusing my energy. My other uh, possibility was completely different. It was going to be about the presidential election of 1884, which uh-huh. would also be a lot of fun, probably the dirtiest election in American history. Mm-hmm. But uh, that one's on the back burner at the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah. let me just say, David Kaiser, thank you very much for being on the show. It was a terrific conversation, and we hope to talk to you when uh, your next book comes out, Okay. Well, that would be great, and uh, thank you very much, and uh, this was a great opportunity for me. Okay. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with David Kaiser about his book, The Road to Dallas, The Assassination of John F. Kennedy. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.